Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What I think makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. This week's episode is about Yasujiro Ozu's 1949 classic, Late Spring. This is a film that I really love. And in this episode, I give you a bit of information about Ozu's life, about what makes his directing style so unique, and I also provide a really personal and in-depth analysis of Late Spring and why I love it so much. In particular, the father-daughter relationship in the film really resonates with me because I lost my father at a young age when I was a teenager, and I was very close to him, and so This film is really close to my heart because of that, because of that relationship between the father and the daughter. And I'm sharing this episode in the month of May, and May is the month when my father died. And he died in 2006. And to help me cope with my grief this year, because it's difficult for me every year, I wanted to talk about films. And I wanted to finish the month of May by talking about late spring and talking about a really beautiful portrait of a father-daughter relationship. And I hope that you will listen to this episode. I put a lot of heart into it. It's very personal, um, but that's how this podcast is. I share my life experiences. I share things that I'm going through. I talk about everything. I bear my soul, but I do that in the hopes that you will see something of yourself in me and that maybe you'll feel less alone. Or maybe even if you don't relate to me personally, maybe my story will give you a different perspective on a film that you like, or it may introduce you to a film that you haven't seen. So I, I hope that you will listen to this episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible, and I just, I'm so grateful for all of you. If financial support is not an option, and I absolutely understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes so that more people can discover it. Those reviews really do help. You could tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films, or you could interact with me on social media. I'm on Facebook at Her Head and Films. I'm on Instagram at Her Head and Films. You can see a full list of my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. Before I get into my full analysis of Late Spring, and before I talk about why I love it, why it means so much to me, and give you my thoughts about it, I would like to give you a bit of background information about Yasujiro Ozu, and I'd also like to talk a bit about Setsuko Hara. 
Ozu is a director that took me a while to come across and discover. I've talked about in previous episodes, um, I had a series where I talked about the films that were really pivotal for me and made me fall in love with art house cinema. And those include The Passion of Joan of Arc and Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura, Chris Marker's La Jete. As you may notice, those are really European art house films from France and Italy. Italian neorealism has been really important to me. The French New Wave has been really important to me. I haven't talked much about the French New Wave except for Cleo from 5 to 7, but I would say Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows was a really big film for me, and maybe I'll cover it on the podcast one day. Um, so I kind of really started more with French and Italian Well, and even Swedish with Ingmar Bergman. So that was sort of where I began with art house cinema. And it took me much longer to move beyond that. And that's something that has happened recently. Now, I did love Abbas Kuristami, and he's an Iranian director. And I've talked about many of his films on the podcast, from his um, Coker trilogy to Taste of Cherry to um, Close Up. So his films are very dear to me. But it took me a while to get beyond Europe and to learn more about Asia, to learn more about Japanese cinema. And I am by no means an aficionado about Japanese cinema. I'm still very early to it. I haven't explored it as much as I would like to. I do love Onibaba. I watched that last year and really loved it. I haven't seen much Kurosawa at all. I have seen Rashomon. And I loved it, and I was very impressed by it. But Japanese cinema is still pretty new for me, but I have really fallen deeply in love with Yasujiro Ozu. I love his work, and there's a quietness and a simplicity about it, but it's really not simple at all. These are films with immense depths, immense wells of emotion and feeling, and... um. Ozu, I think, is my number one when it comes to Japanese cinema so far and what I've seen. As I say, I haven't seen a ton, but I do have a deep, deep affection and love for Ozu. And um, I recently got into his films, probably within the last few years. So it's 2018 right now. I would say I discovered him more around 2016, 2017, and it was a really big moment in my life when I discovered Ozu. And around that time, I would say I also found Satyajit Ray, who is an Indian director, and I'm such a huge fan of the Apu trilogy, and Charyalada, and The Big City, and his films have really deeply touched me, just the way that Ozu has and when I found Satyajit Ray and Yasujiro Ozu, I would describe that as sort of um, a different, I, I don't know, I would, I would describe it as like a really seminal moment. Like there's the moment when I discovered Art House Cinema in 2011, when I watched Chris Marker's La Jete and I was watching La Ventura and I was really falling in love with European cinema. And then there's this whole other 
uh, God, I wish, I wish I had the word for it. It's like this whole other dimension or something was opened up to me through Ray and through Ozu. And it took me beyond Europe. It took me into other countries and more deeply into world cinema. And I still have so much to explore. I'm, I'm not there yet. I still have a lot to watch. So Ozu is very dear to me. Um, I want to give you some information about his life and about his work. This is not intended to be any kind of substitute for reading a book about him or going more deeply into research. This is not an authoritative biography of Yasujiro Ozu. I just want to let you know that. But this is some research that I've done and some tidbits and some facts and, and um, things about him and his life that I think are really interesting and fascinating. And um, Ozu, it's very interesting. He, I think he's a fascinating person and I would love to eventually read a book about him. A big goal of mine is to read more books about these directors that I really love and the thing is, is that when I do this podcast, I do an episode per week. I release the episodes each week. So I I don't do seasons or anything like that. So I don't have the opportunity to go into really deep research. You know, I have a day job. I have the, you know, my regular life. If I could read a book about Ozu in a week and provide you all kinds of information that's authoritative and in-depth, I would. I'm sorry that I can't do that, but I hope that what I do offer is enough. Um, but I would certainly love to read about Ozu and learn more about him. And I'd love to keep exploring Japanese cinema. It's it's really important to me to watch more Japanese cinema. It is a priority for me in my life. And um, I would have to say that Ozu is the one that opened the door for me. I think, I think all of us have different directors that open us up to different cinema, right? So for me, Krzysztof Kieślowski opens the door for Polish cinema. And I would say Francois Truffaut opened the door for French cinema. Sechajet Ray opened the door for Indian cinema. So I think we all have sort of those um, transitional or those really pivotal directors that get us interested in different kinds of cinema all around the world. And um, so Ozu is, for me, he is that with Japanese cinema. And he was born in 1903 and he died in 1963 of cancer. And he actually died on the day that he was born. It was the same date, which is very odd <laughs> and sort of a strange thing. So I read a few sources um, to talk about Ozu. And one is this really great essay by Paul Schrader that's on Film Comment, the Film Comment website. And everything that I mentioned in this episode from the episodes prior that I've done to the um, essays that I'm taking my information from will be in the show notes of each episode and I will have a list so that you can go and if you want to explore it on your own or you want to read the full essays you certainly can do that. Paul Schrader's essay is really exceptional and fascinating and he talks about how Ozu is considered very Japanese, that of all the Japanese directors, you know, think of, you know, Kurosawa and all of them, 
that Ozu is co- was considered almost too Japanese. Well, too Japanese for um, for ex for exporting it. He really did not get distributed in the West, and he never traveled to the West, as far as I know. He died in 1963, but really in his lifetime, his work was not known about in the West. It just wasn't. And um, it's not until like the 60s and the 70s that Western audiences, I would think, you know, the United States in particular, it's not until the 60s and the 70s, really more the 70s, that he gets discovered, that people become aware of his work which is just crazy to me. It's just crazy to me that this man made over 50 films in his lifetime and nobody outside Japan really knew about him. That feels wrong to me in every possible way. But I thought that was very interesting that he's considered very Japanese and I guess they thought that the things that he filmed and it's his films are sort of divided between the the pre-war period and the post-war period of and I'm talking about the Second World War and it's and most of his all of his masterpieces really come after the Second World War or most of them do and they're very serious and they tend to focus more on family life I mean Paul Schrader in his essay says that Ozu basically made the same film over and over and something really fascinating that I found out was that he would remake his own films so I'm talking about Late Spring, and that was made in 1949. Well, he later remade it in um, color, I think, and it's called An Autumn Afternoon. And it's basically like the same plot line, you know, a widower trying to marry off his daughter. And um, I, I don't know, I've just never, I'm not saying other directors haven't done that. But I myself have never heard of it, of a director going back and saying, well, you know, this film I made 20 years ago, I'm going to remake it. (laughs) So um, I thought that was just very interesting. And Schrader says that Ozu just made the same film over and over again, that they often are about families or about, um, you know, a daughter in the family marrying. And I've seen I've seen a few Ozu films. I've seen Tokyo Story, which I loved. I obviously have seen Late um, Spring. I've seen Record of a Tenement Gentleman, which I found really um, poignant and very moving. Um, what else have I seen? I can't. I can't remember right now. I think those are really the only ones I've seen so far. Um, but I really, I loved all of them, and I feel like a deep affection for them. And um, Maybe he does do the same story over and over. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think some directors, they have, um, I think they have this wound that they keep probing. I'm not saying that Ozu had a wound or anything, but I think some directors just have certain topics, certain themes that they keep probing. For Ingmar Bergman, I would say it was death. You know, death sort of recurs, or the loss of religion, right? The loss of God that sort of recurs throughout his work. And so it's obvious that Ozu was very interested in the family unit and in what was happening to the Japanese family after the Second World War and how social conventions were changing and life had changed. Um, 
the post-war period throughout all the countries after the Second World War is very interesting. What was happening in Europe? What was happening in Japan? What was happening all over the world after such a cataclysmic war that really devastated so many countries? Japan in particular, with the atomic bombs um, dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, dropped by my country, the United States, and I'm very aware of the damage that we have inflicted on Japan. And I talked about it in Hiroshima Mon Amour, Alain René's really amazing film, and I have an episode about that, and I'll share that in the show notes. It's like, how do you grapple with what we did to that country, you know, what we did to Japan. Um, it's hard to be an American. It really is. It's hard to be sort of like a moral being or an ethical person and to be an American and to know the ways in which we have interfered in other countries and disrupted other countries and the damage and destruction we have unleashed in this world, whether it's Japan, whether it's North Korea, South Korea during the Korean War, whether it's Vietnam, like really the damage we've done in Asia, and also the damage we've done in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a lot of different parts of the world. What we've done in Latin America, it's really global, isn't it? Um, the damage that we have done, and so... Japan suffered greatly after the Second World War. And um, so obviously Japan is grappling with that, you know. And the war is sort of quietly, subtly alluded to in late spring. And I may bring it up in my review. It's there under the surface, but it's not explicit. But I just, I think it's really interesting how he remade his films, how he sort of kept going back to certain stories and he wanted to update them. And I definitely intend to watch An Autumn Afternoon. Like, I definitely want to watch that for sure. He actually, interestingly enough, started in comedies in his early career. He, he made more comedic films. And then he later transitioned into his more serious, at times sort of somber films about families and their dynamics and, and all of that. And he was really slow to embrace sound and color in his cinema. Um, he didn't do his first talking until 1936, which was well beyond the time when the first talkie in Japan was made. I think the first talkie in Japan was in 1931. And he doesn't make his first talkie until 1936. So he's five years um, behind and he was slow with color. He doesn't make his first color film and until 1958. He seems to me like a director who was very set in his ideas. And he had very strong ideas about film and about cinema and how he wanted to create films, you know, um, which I have no problem with at all. Um, he, I think he was someone who he had his own vision. He he broke a lot of the rules. I'll talk about that in a minute. He really broke all the rules of cinema, of the way you're supposed to direct a film. And he broke them beautifully, and he broke them for a reason. And I think he's a good example maybe to some filmmakers who are out there. You know, I think a lot of the new films, a lot of it can seem formulaic. A lot of it can seem like 
you know, they're all coming out of the same film school. They're all learning the same rules. And sometimes it's great to break those rules, especially if you're trying to do something radical, you're trying to do something that's meaningful. Sometimes the rules don't fit you. And I think with Ozu, I don't think those felt those rules fit him that he needed to create his own way of creating films. He just had to do that. And I really love like, I think this is one of the last paragraphs in Paul Schrader's essay. And I want to read it in full, because I think it's brilliant. And I think it says a lot about Ozu. And what an enigmatic, sort of mysterious character, mysterious man he was. Quote, You might also think that a director who made films with so much warmth, whose work is infused with such happiness and sorrow, must have had a contented life. The opposite was true. He was a chain smoker. He was an alcoholic. He lived with his mother. His mother died about six months before he did. He never married never had children. He lived for the cinema, and all he did was cinema. He didn't really have any other life. He had a morbid cast of mind. On his tombstone, he had a single Japanese kanji inscribed on it, and that kanji is mu, or mu, which means the void or emptiness. You can look at his whole filmmaking career as one slow fade out. A dissolve against a static shot where finally he's gone and he's in that Zen land of Mew. Unquote. I love that because it made me think about how, just now especially, it's so ironic that this man that made so many films about family, about the dynamics and the complexities and the complications of being in a family, really never had one of his own. He lived with his mother. He never got married. He never had children. It's so interesting that that was the themes and the topics that he came back to time and time again, even though it did not mirror his real life. Um, Not that every director's films need to mirror their own life, but it's just very interesting that the things that he put on the screen were things that he did not really have um I mean obviously when he was I guess a little boy he would have known what it was like to be in a family unit but when he was older he did not have his own family so I think that's a really you know interesting thing um and there's an article by the Japan Times and it's called um re-examining Ozu on film and um And I don't want to share too much from that one, but I did, what was interesting about this essay was that it talked about this 2012 poll of leading directors and critics by Sight and Sound magazine, and it selected what they considered the best films of all time. And Ozu's Tokyo Story, which was released in 1953, was voted number one by directors. So for directors, the best film of all time is Tokyo Story. And for critics, the critics poll Tokyo Story came in number three. Number one was Vertigo. Um, so Ozu, it's interesting because uh, I didn't know much about Ozu. Like, I don't know if he is really, when it comes to the general public, 
or even when it comes to a lot of cinephiles. I don't know how well known Ozu is, even though he has so much stature. When I discovered Ozu, he felt like a little secret to me. He felt like this director that not a lot of people were talking about. They tend to talk more about Kurosawa. I knew about Kurosawa. I'd heard of him. But Ozu felt like a little bit more of a secret. Even though Tokyo Story was voted number one. And Tokyo Story is just so moving. But I think I prefer Late Spring. I don't know if Tokyo Story hit me the way that Late Spring did. For me, Late Spring has very personal aspects to it for me. And that's what I'm going to talk about in my review. And it's the film that I wanted to review more than Tokyo Story. But I, I love both and both are dear to me. But I think we just sometimes, uh, because of our life experiences or just different things, certain films will hit us in a certain way. And um, and that's what happened for me with, with Ozu. But I did want to mention the poll, that it was voted number one by directors. And it was voted number three by critics. And I think that says a lot. I mean... I don't love polls. Obviously, these polls are probably skewed towards men and white men at that. So we're not getting like a, a full perspective of cinema. I don't know how many women ended up on these lists. Probably not too many, right? Um, but I think they can be helpful. I think they can be helpful if maybe you're new to art house cinema and you you want to know what are the best, what are the greats, what are other directors inspired by, what do critics think are just really essential to have seen, and they can be helpful in that regard. But there's also this other thing about art house cinema that's so beautiful, and that is just the process of discovery, that you could come across a film that not many people are talking about, that maybe they're not on the lists of the greatest of all time, or they're not included in these polls, and you can just fall in love with them, right? But Ozu has huge stature. I mean, even though his work was not distributed during his lifetime, it wasn't distributed outside of Japan, or wasn't distributed in the West. Now, you know, all these years later, 50 years after his death, he absolutely has huge stature in Western, in the Western film canon. That directors and critics absolutely respect his work and love his work. And um, he's definitely considered a central figure. And he has a huge presence in something like the Criterion Collection, which is really a big arbiter of taste when it comes to art house. I'm not saying that I agree with every single title that Criterion chooses, um, or that I don't have any critiques of Criterion collection, because there's not enough women in it for me personally. But they do great work. They do important work. And they have tons of Ozu. I mean, I would wonder if they have their his whole catalog almost. They have lots and lots of Ozu. If you have Filmstruck here in the United States, I think they also have a service in the UK. But I know here in the United States, there's tons of Ozu on Filmstruck. If you're wondering where to start, I would say Late Spring and I would say Tokyo Story. Start with the great ones. Um, but everybody has their favorites. Paul, Paul Schrader in his essay really loved An Autumn Afternoon. That was one that came up a lot. I liked Record of a Tenement Gentleman. Um... There were some other ones mentioned that I have saved on my Filmstruck that I'm definitely, definitely going to watch myself. But um, 
I'm sure there are some articles that would tell you where to start, but for me, I would go with Late Spring and Tokyo Story, personally. Because I just think that they are really um, amazing. Okay, so I wanted to talk also about um, this Senses of Cinema profile of Ozu, and it gives some really important information about his style. I haven't gotten into that yet. I've sort of been talking about more general things, but he had a very particular style. And I thought that the senses of cinema profile really explained it well, because I'm not someone who is really knowledgeable about the technical aspects of film. I've never held a film camera. I've never, I don't have any kind of technical experience with that. And I don't totally understand like shots and and things like that. And they this profile did a really good job of talking about why certain things about Ozu's style are so unique and how it can give it some of that power but the the profile talks about how um his films are very concerned with quote the cycles of birth and death the transition from childhood to adulthood and the tradition between tradition and modernity their titles often emphasize the changing of seasons a symbolic backdrop for the evolving transitions of human experiences. Unquote. And that's true. Almost all of the titles of his films are about the seasons. A lot of them. Yeah. I mean, some of them are not, but a lot of them are. And I would definitely agree. Because he focuses on families, we get a look at everything that happens in families. In Tokyo Story, it's about the parents. There's death involved in, in that. And then with late spring, I think that is sort of connected to the transition from childhood to adulthood of our main character, Noriko, getting married and having to transition into this other point, this other period of her life. And so I think all of that is in his work. And I would also say that, um, and I'm, and this will come out more when I'm talking about late spring, like what exactly I love so much about his cinema is there's just a warmth about his work that I react to and that I connect to. There is a humanity to it. There just is like, there's, especially with late spring, you know, it's about this relationship between this father and his daughter and that obviously means a lot to me because I'm recording this episode in May of 2018 um, and I'll talk about this more in my review and why I'm talking about the film specifically now but I lost my father in May. I lost him in 2006 when he died and I wanted to talk about this film in May because I struggle with my grief a lot at this time. It brings back memories of losing him which is really hard for me. But I also, and to, to deal with that, I wanted to talk about films. And I wanted to talk about films that meant something in particular to me. And this film, it, with the father-daughter relationship, it is just so beloved by me. Like, I absolutely adore this film because of the warmth and the love between Noriko and her father. And it's something that I relate to. It's something that resonates with me deeply. And I, I've been wanting to talk about a father-daughter relationship in film. And I think Ozu gives us that. And he gives us such a beautiful one. And um, 
with a lot of depth and complexities and I just love this film but that's the reason I'm talking about it and so his his films and it's the same with Satyajit Ray especially with Potter Panchali and the Apu trilogy it just it hits me it hits me in the gut it hits me in the heart and you can't always put that into words why it moves you so much but it does and I just think there is a deep humanity in his work and I love that he focuses on families. I love that a lot of the action takes place within the home and within the domestic sphere. I love that women are a big part of his films. Um, I really love, I didn't mention it, Tokyo Twilight. I really liked Tokyo Twilight. Nobody talks about this film, but it's it's just this really great film about women. And um, I would urge you to watch Tokyo Twilight. So Tokyo Story... Tokyo Twilight, Late Spring, um, Record of a Tenement Gentleman. So far, those are the ones that I really like. I've seen about four or five of his films now. Um, I, I love the presence of women in his work. And the women are not sexualized or objectified, in my opinion. Other people may have other thoughts about this. It's the same reason that I talk about why I love Satyajit Ray is that women play a big role in his films. Whether it's the main character in Charulata or the big city, he gives humanity to the women in his films. And for the time when he was making those films in the 40s and 50s, and Ozu, I think, does the same, it was quite radical, and it's so refreshing to watch nowadays. Um, You know, think of uh, Duga in Potter Panchali. Apu's um, sister or think of Apu's mother throughout um, the different films in in the Apu trilogy. These women are strong and and interesting and complex and I would argue that Ozu gives us something similar in his cinema that he gives us women who are they are sometimes resisting tradition. They're resisting convention. I would argue that Noriko is really resisting that in late spring. She's resisting this idea that you have to get married, that that's the only path for you. I mean, she resists it for only so long, obviously, because she does end up getting married. But I think she's very aware that what other people want her to do is not what she wants to do. And in the beginning, she is fighting against it. She's saying, no, I don't want to get married. She's very clear about what she thinks and feels. So Ozu, I think, really represents women in an interesting way. And um, that's something that really speaks to me personally. There's just this deep humanity in his work. And he gives all his characters humanity, not just the men. The women get it too. And so, but I wanted um, to wrap this up. I did want to wrap up my part about Ozu. I did want to talk about his style and why it's so unique and and different and how it breaks the rules. And so I think Senses of Cinema really sums it up really well. So, quote, As the 1940s came to an end, Ozu began to fuse his early American influences with an overriding desire to reduce his techniques. In his later films, he reduced all camera movement, pans, dollying, and crabbing to kneel. He disregarded classical Hollywood cinema conventions such as the 180-degree rule where the camera always remains on one side of an imaginary axis drawn between two talking actors 
and replaced it with what critics have termed the 360 degree rule because Ozu crosses this axis and he replaced traditional shot reverse shot techniques with a system whereby each character looks straight into the camera when speaking to someone else. This had the unusual effect of placing the viewer directly in the center of conversations as if being talked to. Instead of the Hollywood convention of alternately peering over characters' shoulders during such sequences. Furthermore, Ozu decided to reduce his choice of transition effect. Gone were fades, wipes, dissolves, all replaced with the straight cut. Reducing his techniques in this way focused all attention on his characters and their humanity shines through. Unquote. They also talk about his camera. And this is really important because he places his camera in a very different place than where other directors place it. Quote, in addition to being motionless in his later work, Ozu's camera from early in his career was often placed at a very low level as if the viewer were sat cross-legged. It has been noted that this is at the same level one sits on tatami for a tea ceremony in a Japanese home, or while meditating, sitting in silence, observing, reaching meaning through extreme simplification. It is also the height Ozu had to position his camera when making a film about children, and it is said he liked it so much that he stuck with it. Ozu clearly had many reasons for adopting such a low position for his camera, and it became one of the few facets of his pared-down technique, unquote. So that is what makes his work unique in terms of the technical aspects, is that when the characters are talking to, to each other, he does like a close-up of them. He doesn't, he, it's about the axis, as I said. I don't totally understand it, but I get it when I see it that he is straight on the actor and you don't see over the shoulder and, and all of that. I'm putting it terribly. They put it in a much more eloquent way. But, um, and the, the level of the camera is much lower. Um, possibly because he's filming within the domestic sphere and the people are often sitting on the floor. So if you think about it, if he had the camera higher up, he would kind of be looking down at the at the actors and the characters. And so putting it on that level just, I think it reinforces the intimacy of it. And it just puts the camera at the level where they're sitting and talking. And it actually makes a lot of sense. But there is a staticness about the camera. It doesn't move a lot. It doesn't do a lot. The story is unfolding in front of the camera. And something else that I really love is the way that he will he will linger on things. He will linger on certain objects. And other essays have talked about this too, that he lingers on objects. He'll linger on a teapot or he'll linger on the trees swaying in the wind um, and, and things like that. So that's like a really um, important part of his cinema as well is, is um, his focus on those individual objects. It's, you know, most directors will keep the camera on the people, 
and they don't want to focus on anything extraneous from the characters. And Ozu's not afraid to take you beyond the people, to show you the environment where they live, whether it's outside and it's the trees and it's the rooftops of the houses or it's the train going by. When I was watching Late Spring, I noticed the trains a lot in the film or in the interior, focusing on different things in the house. And there's even this scene in Late Spring where... I think it's Noriko is in a room and she leaves the room and instead of the camera following her out the door, the door closes and we stay in the room. We don't know where Noriko goes. We're still in the room and he lingers on that shot. He's not afraid to make us, to make the shot go long, you know, to, to take time there's a slowness about his films, but in the best possible way. A slowness that is meditative, a, slow, a slowness that is, um, that has a depth to it. And But I, I noticed that in one scene where she left the room, but we didn't leave with her. We were still in the room. And I thought that was fascinating. To leave us in the room. To let us linger in this space. And that's what I think Ozu does, is he lets us linger in these different spaces with and without these characters. But he gives us a sense of where they live and what's outside the home and also what's inside the home. And what's, you know, outside the person and what's inside the person. And the actors that he chose, especially Setsuko Hara, they always conveyed that interiority of the character so beautifully because when you watch a film you're not you're not necessarily connecting to techniques and and shots you're connecting to the actors you're connecting to the story that they're telling through their bodies and their behavior and their movements and their faces and Setsuko Hara was just amazing at that and so there's this essay on the New York Review of Books by Robert Gottlieb and it's about Sasuke Hara and it was written after she died in 2015 and it's called An Actress Like No Other and it's a great essay about her and what I want to say about Sasuke Hara is that she when you discover her she is a revelation that the first time you see her on film and I'm sure the first time I saw her it must have been Tokyo Story um, but Late Spring was her first film with Ozu. She is enchanting and captivating. And when she smiles, it's like the clouds have parted and the angel choir is singing, right? And she is so gorgeous and full of life and vitality. But then she can also convey deep sadness. Um, and she does that in Late Spring really beautifully. But she was a very dynamic actress I think she was born in 1920 and she died in 2015 at the age of 95 and she was this very crucial actress in the golden age of Japanese cinema and she worked with all kinds of different directors including Kurosawa but she is really known for her work with Ozu and I do think it's sort of a defining part of her life you know even though she worked with other directors she was always with Ozu and Gottlieb writes she is inescapably refined sensitive well-born and almost always modern 
She's the archetype of the post-war young woman, yet she also embodies the virtues of the traditional Japanese woman. Loyalty, self-sacrifice, suffering, and silence. She's the perfect daughter, wife, mother. She was utterly real, yet she represented an ideal, the ideal, unquote. And there he's talking about the characters that she played, whether it's Kurosawa or with Ozu, that she tended to play... Um, she had those traditional virtues, yet she was also sort of representative of women in post-war Japan. But um, I think she's so much more than a type or an ideal personally. I think she, the roles that she played, especially Noriko in some of the Ozu films, that she brings a humanity to all of the roles that she played. And it's, it's interesting how her life in some ways mirrored Ozu's. She was very private. Um, Gottlieb tells us that she never married. She was, uh, quote, never linked with anyone romantically, although many p people believe that she and Ozu had an affair. He, too, never married, living with his mother until she died only two years before his own death on his 60th birthday in 1963. He was buried in the seaside resort town of Kamakura, just outside Tokyo, and it was to Kamakura that Hara in her early 40s retired shortly after his death, living out her long life in her family house, making no public appearances, shunning interviewers and photographers, mostly seeing family and her old classmates from school. The one thing she did reveal to her countless admirers in her final press conference was that she had never enjoyed making movies and had only done it to help her family financially. Then, 50 odd years of silence. To avoid fuss, she had arranged that her death, which occurred on September 5th, not be made public until more than two months had gone by. Unquote. Isn't that fascinating? She lived a very private life. She didn't marry, just like Ozu didn't marry. And she really shunned any kind of attention and um, just lived out her life in obscurity and, and in, in a private way. And I think I just think that's astounding <laughs> that this person who was so radiant and so luminous and so important to cinema, especially Japanese cinema and to art house cinema, that she later said that she didn't even enjoy making films that it was just to make money I mean I don't know how true that is I mean I don't know I mean maybe it's true maybe that is truly how she felt about it but either way she was just crucial and and so important in these films and she has a presence in them that is just extraordinary and um for uh, an essay on Criterion.com, Donald Ritchie, I think, really put it perfectly. And I think it's the way that I feel as well. And he says, quote, Ozu's films might well have been somewhat different without her. He himself said that he could no more write a script without knowing who was going to play a part than an artist could paint a picture without knowing what color to use. The subtle shades and radiant hues of Setsuko Hara not only fit, but in a way contrived the characters that Ozu created, unquote. And I made this argument when I was talking about La Ventura 
and Monica Vitti and Michelangelo Antonioni that Monica Vitti is often talked about, the muse of Antonioni. But I argue that she's much more than that, that she makes La Ventura and La Clise and Red Desert and La Noche, that she makes them what they are, that they would not be the same films without Monica Vitti, because I consider her one of the most beautiful women who ever lived, and I think she was a gifted actress. I really do. And so I would argue the same thing with Setsuka Hara, that I think we... I think we marginalize or minimize and diminish these these actresses when we call them muses, as though they are only muses, as though they are not the heart and soul and blood of a film that they are starring in, that Late Spring would not be what it is without the presence of Setsuko Hara, just like La Ventura wouldn't be the same without Monica Vitti. I mean, I think that's just the truth, personally. And so I think these women deserve more credit. They may not be directors. They may not have written it. They may not have made all the decisions about the film. But they absolutely contribute to what makes it great. And what makes it a masterpiece is the gift that they give of themselves. And their acting. And their emotions. And their humanity. And what they are able to project on screen. Because not everybody can do it. Not everybody can be a great actress. It doesn't. It's not in everybody. It's in certain people. And they just have it and they know how to use it. Marilyn Monroe obviously had it. Many people have had it. And Setsuko Hara had it. And Late Spring and Tokyo Story and all the films she was in for Ozu would not be what they are without her presence and without her talent and her gift and what she gave through her performances in these films. So she is a crucial and essential part of it. So, um, But I did want to give you just a little bit of background on Ozu. Why he's important. Um, why he's considered so great. And also a little bit of background on Setsuko Hara. That she made these films and then she basically just stopped. <laughs> and she lived this very private life. And um, But even if she didn't enjoy acting, I'm glad she did it. I'm glad she gave gave us these films, especially Late Spring. And now I want to talk about Late Spring. I want to give you my thoughts about the film and why, really, it's my favorite Ozu film. I've seen Tokyo Story. I've seen several of his films, like I said before. But for me, there is a deeper, more personal connection to Late Spring. And so I want to go deeper into that and why I love this film, why it's important to me, why I chose to talk about it at this particular time in my life. So first, I do want to say that Ozu has really been comforting me lately. I've been struggling with depression and anxiety, not just because it's May and it's the anniversary of my father's death, but my mother was recently hospitalized a couple of weeks ago. She had bronchitis and she was in the hospital for a few days. That was a very destabilizing experience for me. I've also been having issues where I live at the apartment complex where I live and uh, difficult neighbors that I have right now. And it's been causing me a lot of anxiety and stress. And so I would say I've been struggling more in this month of May than 
been a lot, and it's been a hard year for me, 2018. A lot of stuff's been going on, but the last few weeks in particular have just really been trying for me and have been stressful for my body, and I don't handle stress well, and anxiety is something that is constantly something that I struggle with. I've talked about it on the podcast You know, some of you might think, oh, anxiety, I have anxiety, but I'm talking about intense anxiety that almost debilitates me physically. I'm talking about trouble breathing and my heart racing so hard and uh, getting overheated and feeling like I can't breathe and having panic attacks. I mean, I'm talking about intense anxiety. I'm not talking about, oh, you're nervous before you have to give a speech or something. I'm talking about serious physical anxiety that is tormenting and I can't control it it's something that just takes over my body I try to do breathing exercises I try to do things and techniques to help me I meditate that's something that helps me as well so it's just it's very intense for me and I've just had stuff going on lately and so I've been watching more Ozu and I just find his work to be calming his pace, the pace of his films is much slower than a lot of other films. I would not say that his films, the ones that I have seen and that I enumerated throughout this podcast episode, those that I have seen are slower. There's not a lot going on in these films. These are, it's just not Onibaba. You know, I've seen Onibaba. I've seen In the Realm of the Senses. I've seen some Japanese cinema where a lot more is going on and there's much more drama and much more action and, you know, Rashomon and all of that. But Ozu is very different. He's within the domestic realm. It's, for me, the thing about Ozu is that it's almost like this, um, almost like this calm stream. There's a calmness on the surface, but I think that calmness is masking a depth that is actually in turmoil, that is actually um, sort of erupting within itself, that these characters are often um, hiding what they truly feel, and that it only comes out in certain moments of emotion, of emotional catharsis, I guess you could say at times, or in certain outbursts, or maybe in the way that they look, or certain actions that they take. Um, It's sometimes very subtle, the way that sort of their tumultuous emotions will come out, but I always feel like the stillness and and, um, the calmness on the surface of his films are always hiding a much more violent depth you know, of, you know, if you think about, about it, I know his films happen within the house often, within the domestic sphere, but if you think about it, that is where some of the most intense, painful, um, and beautiful things happen in our lives are within the four walls of our home. It is with our parents, it is with our loved ones, it is with our children. That is where very intense, powerful things happen. Um, you know, in this episode, I am not highly knowledgeable about the Japanese culture, and I'm sorry that I can't offer you that context within Ozu, within his films, but what I do want to try to bring to it is why me, living in 
the United States, living in the southern part in the rural area of the United States, why I connect so much to these films that were made very far away from me and in a very different culture from mine and um, many, many years before I was ever born. And yet these films move me and they make me cry at times. They make me feel emotions. They, um, they touch me. And um, it's hard for me to put it into words. It's the same thing I come up against when I try to talk about Krzysztof Kieślowski's films or even Satyajit Ray's films. I talked about this in, in, when I was talking, I think, about the Apu trilogy or Potter Panchali, where I talk about that is such a different experience for me, a little boy growing up in rural India. And yet there were things about it that related to my own life and to my own emotions. And it's the same thing with Ozu. But I think that maybe some people might want to ignore him and marginalize him because he did make the same film over and over again, like Paul Schrader said, that he focused on the family, that he focused on children and their parents and marriage and, you know, women's experiences, I would say, and them trying to, them trying to maintain their lives in the home with with their parents but then also that struggle to leave if they do want to leave like like that happens in this film so there's a lot going on in his films even though they seem simple even though they seem um like there's not much going on I think I think um I think it fits in line with sort of the devaluation of of what happens in the domestic sphere. I mean, if you think about it, especially in the West, that's more of a feminine space. That's where women are and where their lives sometimes um, happen. Although more women are obviously working and but even when they come home, they have to do a lot of stuff in the house. They have to do chores. They have to take care of children. And so when we think of the domestic sphere, we, we think of it as a feminized space. And so, of course, those stories get put down. Of course, stories about families and mothers and, and fathers and, and children, of course, that is sort of belittled, especially here in Western culture. We want wars and really overly dramatic things, but I think that what happens within the four walls of our homes has just as much validity and matters just as much as what happens outside of them. And that is what Ozu is showing us. And I've brought this up as well, but I'll bring it up again. I think of Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. And what she was doing with that book was saying, a day in the life of a woman is just as valid as any other topic, whether it's about war or those more masculine things that the day in the life of a woman is a worthy subject of literature. And so I would argue with Ozu that what happens within the domestic sphere, what happens within rooms and homes, is a worthy subject for cinema. That maybe he did make the same story over and over again, but our lives often un unfurl in similar ways that all of us have parents all of us are children at one time all of us have to deal with family we have to deal with the transition from childhood to adulthood many of us have to deal with marriage many of us have to deal with leaving home we have to deal with elderly parents you know these are subjects that are timeless that are um eternal in many ways, is what happens within a family. 
Whether it's between children and their parents or between a couple and their children, you know, it doesn't matter. It, it is very universal in a way, and yet it's very specific with Ozu's films that it is a Japanese family, often in the post-war period, and the things that are happening in their lives. So that is why Late Spring moves me. Is and why Ozu's work in general moves me, and why I guess I find it comforting. And what I find comforting is his style, is the slowness of it, the stillness of the camera. The camera does not move, it is completely stationary. And I don't know, it's just there's a stillness about his work and a slowness about it that I find soothing. And maybe it's soothing that I know what to expect when I watch an Ozu film, that it is going to be about sort of these intergenerational conflicts or complexities. And that resonates with me because I'm someone who's really close to my parents. I was really close to my father. And that's why I'm talking about this film, because this is a film about a father and a daughter. And I wouldn't say that I seek out a lot of films about fathers and daughters. I find it really painful to engage with art that is about fathers and daughters because that is something that is over for me that I will never have a father again and I lost that when I was 16 years old and so I'm not married I've never been married but he's he wouldn't be there to walk me down the aisle he wasn't there when I graduated um, from high school or from college and but honestly everybody brings that those things up it's sort of cliche, you know, your dad won't walk you down the aisle, your, he won't be there if you have a child or certain milestones in your life. But honestly, the things that I miss the most are just the ordinary moments, just watching television together, you know, going out together, going to a restaurant, laughing, talking about things, watching something together, going to the park together. It doesn't have to be these big milestone moments, because that's not really what our life is made of. Our life is made up of all these ordinary moments, these ordinary experiences, and Ozu captures that too. There's nothing big and massive that happens in Ozu's films. He doesn't even show the weddings in most of his films. He doesn't even show the big ceremonies. He's capturing those ordinary moments, those moments that seem inconsequential and seem like they're nothing, but in fact, they are the substance of our lives. They are the material of our lives, and they do matter. And what I love about Late Spring so much is how he shows the relationship between the characters. So... Our characters are Setsuko Hara, who plays Noriko, and this was her first film with Ozu. And in other films, she would also play a character named Noriko, although it's not the same character. And then her father is played by um, Chishu Ryu, who I love personally. Um, he was in Tokyo Story. He's been He was in a ton of Ozu films. And there is something about this man, like his face is so kind and so warm and there is a sweetness about him. I don't know how he was in real life. I have no idea. But the character he plays in Late Spring especially, and even in Autumn Afternoon, which I got to watch, um, I know earlier, I, I record some of this stuff at different times. 
So when I recorded my segment about Ozu and Setsukahara, I had not watched an autumn afternoon, but since then I have. And I don't know if I'll talk about it, but um, it was good, but I prefer late spring. Chishu Ryu, um, he his face is so kind and sweet and that sweetness reminded me a lot of my dad and so in this film there is just something about him as a father that I just find incredibly moving and um an autumn afternoon didn't work as much for me I know a lot of people love it they consider it a masterpiece but that film for me did not develop the relationship between the father and the daughter Late Spring really is centered around the relationship between Noriko and her father. Um, And it's, you see the love that they have for each other. And um, there, there are just so many scenes where they'll smile at each other. They really just seem to beam in one another's company. And they seem to have this really deep connection because her father is a widower. So his wife is gone. Her mother is dead. And it's just the two of them left. She doesn't have any sibling. It's just her and her father. And um, the face of Setsuko Hara is just absolutely luminous in this film. Like when you see Setsuko Hara for the first time... It's like a lightning bolt. Like I had never, I don't think I had seen her until I watched Late Spring and she has such a presence on screen and you absolutely just fall in love with her. Like when she smiles, you smile and they're just always smiling at each other in this film. And, um, but they're smiling and they seem to just really love each other, but there is a bit of the war um, trauma there. It's not explicitly talked about, but Noriko, during the Second World War, she did forced labor and she had become very thin um, at the time because we're told, um, because there's a man that she meets and he talks about how she looks plumper and healthier And in one scene, her father talks about how she lugged home potatoes. So there is this sense that Noriko really suffered during the war. I don't think we're told exactly what happened to her mother. I don't know what happened there. Um, But Noriko is 27 years old. And for that time, I'm sure, that is considered a little bit old. And that at this time, a young woman would start to get married, maybe even probably before that, because her father is starting to feel that it's time for her to leave and um, for her to create her own life. And um, it's interesting because I'm 28. So this film really resonates with me because she's 27, I'm 28. And so this is the kind of film that I think will really hit you if you have lost a father or if you are in your late 20s and you're thinking about these about these issues really about marriage and about and I'm later on in this I'm going to I'm going to give my own unique argument about this film and about just how I feel about the way that we prioritize romantic love especially in the western culture and I don't know how it is with Japan But I do want to make a few arguments. But I want to talk more about the film before I get there. Um, Noriko really is not interested in getting married. She, she is, she's sweet, but she is adamant. 
you know that's the thing about Setsuko Hara I think is that I she, there's such a diversity and a complexity about her performance because at one minute she can be really smiling and sweet but when she needs to be firm like when she insists that she does not want to be married that she is not interested in it she's very um strong about it there is a strength about Noriko that she knows what she wants and she knows what is best for her and she doesn't just silently sit there and say oh yeah I'll get married to whoever you want me to she says I don't want to be married I I don't she tells that to her aunt at one point there's a scene where they're talking um and and then other times, like I said, she has this sweet sort of veneer or this sweet um, disposition, I guess you could say. But there's a lot of emotion in her. And she has moments where she cries, where, um, where she breaks down. And I'll talk about that when I get to those scenes. But um, what occurred to me a bit as I was watching the film is how Noriko and, and her father sort of act like husband and wife, you know, that he comes home and she cooks for him and she has an apron on and there is this dynamic between them that feels a little bit like husband and wife and I wonder if people would say oh they're too close you know the the father and daughter it's not normal for a father and daughter um to be close and I would argue that that's just wrong that it's totally fine for parents and children to be really close because I myself was close to my father. And I think even making a comparison like that, that they were like father, they were like husband and wife is sort of insufficient that every comparison that we have is about romantic love. And so I guess I'll just go ahead and make my argument now. Um, I really want to argue with this film. Um, that it is valid that Noriko does not want to get married, that she wants to live with her father and that she wants to take care of him and that I don't think marriage has to be a necessary thing. Um, in that time, obviously it was, especially in Japan. You know, a young daughter needed to get married. But it feels like all this time later, 60 years later or more, we are still in that mindset that when you reach a certain age, you have to, especially as women, it's totally fine to be an unmarried man in the world. But as a woman, you need to be married. That romantic love is the center of your existence. That being with a man and having children and moving out of your family's home, that is the be-all, end-all. And that the only love that is valid and that matters is romantic love. Because we say of people who live with their parents, we put them down. We look down on them. We call women who don't get married old maids and spinsters. And there is a huge disparaging that happens to these women. But I want to argue that why can't we live in the way that is right for us? And I really do have a problem with the way that romantic love is prioritized in our society. And I think that there are other kinds of love like parental love, like familial love, like friendship that can sustain us as well. So why this, this film resonates so deeply with me is that I do live with my mother. My mom is a widow, just like Noriko's father is a widower. 
Um, and I do still live with my mom and she has remarried. I live with, um, her and her husband. Um, and that is a conscious choice on my part. I want to live with my mother. I am not interested in getting married and I do not date. That's just not what I do. And it's not what I want in my life. I am dedicated to my mom and I want to have a life with my mother And I think a lot of people listening right now probably don't understand that and they don't get it. And it might sound sad or pathetic or, but think about Ozu himself. He lived with his mother until months before he died because she died before him. Now, I don't know anything about Ozu's life, but I have to wonder, did his mother's death have something to do with his own death? I know he had cancer. But did it affect him that here is this person that he lived with his whole life and now she's dead? And so I want to be upfront about my own life and the choices that I have made that I am not interested in getting married and having children and having a life of romantic love. That is maybe one day that would be something I'm interested in. But right now, the life that I want is with my mother because we are close I love her. I help. I take care of her. I help her. We help each other. We sustain each other. I truly believe that there are other kinds of love that are just as valid as romantic love. That there is friendship. That there is a familial bond or a parental bond that is just as powerful as that. And that I have a real problem. I've always had a problem. Even when I was in high school, I remember some of the girls that I was friends with, as soon as they got boyfriends, it was over. You'd never see them again. They were always with their boyfriend. And I guess that's okay if that's what you want. But I do have a problem with the way that women are socialized to put men above everything. And I guess you could argue also that Noriko taking care of her father is another gendered thing. That it is on the onus of the daughter to take care of the father. And couldn't this be similar? Couldn't this be something where the burden is put on the daughter to take care of the father? And I guess that is a valid interpretation that um, that Noriko is a character who is self-sacrificing and, and all of that. And that it's just expected of her. I mean, does she really want to live with her father and take care of him? Or does she feel like she has to and she accepts that role? That's for each viewer to decide. The sense that I got from this film is that she had a genuine deep connection with her father. And she wanted to live with him and she wanted to be with him. And that the love that they had for each other is what sustained her. And so I'm giving a very unique interpretation of this film. I don't know if other people will agree or if other people are shaking their head. I'm not trying to impose anything on this film. What I'm trying to say is that I think it's completely valid that Noriko wants to continue living with her father. That to me, I look at that film and think, what is wrong with that? Because of my own life. Because I live with my mother and I have a strong relationship with her and I have no desire to leave her. That I want to live with her and and I want us to be together. And um, because I consider her my soulmate. I consider her the love of my life because her love is what has helped me survive and stay alive 
through immense amounts of loss, through the death of my father, through so many things. She has been there for me. I can rely on her. I can trust her. And we have unconditional love for each other. And I have no idea how I would find that with another person. I think sometimes our connection with another person is so deep that it cannot be broken. That And that is enough for me. I don't need to go out and, and date and try to find a man or get married. I don't need that. I just don't. And some people do. And that's fine. That's fine if you need that. I'm not judging that. But more than likely, I would be judged. You are already the norm in society. If you're married, if you're involved in a relationship, a romantic relationship, you are in the majority. You know, no one's judging you for that. I'm judged because I live at home because I still live with my mom. And it's the same with Noriko that people are starting to say, well, you need to get married You know, you need to have your own life separate from your father. But what happens if your life is with your father? If that is the life that you want and the life that you love? And um, so there's a scene where Noriko is talking to her aunt. And she talks about how her getting married would cause problems for her father. That he would be lost without her. And she feels that she is really the only one that can take care of him. And that she would never want to leave him and, and do that to him. Um, so again, I guess you could ask the question, does she feel the pressure to live with him? Does she feel like she would be judged if he's all alone and she can't be there to take care of him? And that's a valid thing to ask, I think. You know, is this this seems gendered and she feels the burden to take care of her father, but... Ozu in this film has done such a great job of establishing the relationship between the two of them that for me it feels more genuine than that. It doesn't feel like a burden. It doesn't feel like an obligation. It feels like she loves her father and she loves being with him and that they get a mutual They both get something out of that relationship. It's not just her killing herself to take care of him. Um and she starts to feel a little bit jealous when he seems to show interest in marrying another woman. She says she's okay with it, but this is a really great example of Setsuko Hara's acting, is that there's a scene, and and, um, and you can see in her eyes, you can see in her face that she's not okay with it, that she is offended by it and insulted and really hurt by it. So she thinks that her father um, has feelings for another woman and this upsets her. And this is a scene in which, and there's a few of them, I think. Um, this is a point at which that sort of calm exterior, that sort of sweet, laughing, smiling exterior is is uh, broken. Where you see the pain and you see... Um, the desperation almost in her that she does not want to lose her father. She does not want him to marry, um, to marry another, another person, you know, it's just, this is a really complicated relationship. He is insisting to her that she needs to leave, that she can't stay with him forever. And she says in one scene that I want to stay with you. That's what she says. And he apologizes for making her take care of him for so long. Um, 
she thinks, she literally thinks he can't take care of himself without her. Who would cook for him, who would do his other chores. And I got to thinking when I was watching at this time that I wonder if she, if she gets some kind of sense of purpose from sort of being his caretaker. That I know that that's something that's very real, that there are people that want to be needed, that they like to be caretakers because it makes them feel needed and it makes them feel necessary. And I wonder if something like that is happening with Noriko is that she gets some kind of sense of identity or sense of self by taking care of her father. Um, and I think that could be part of it. She thinks that he needs her and she doesn't like the idea that he might not need her, that he might marry this other woman and he lies to her. That is the heartbreak of this film. And I don't know how I feel about it, that he lies to her and he implies that he is going to marry another woman. He does not say it though. That's the genius of this scene is that she's asking him questions and Chishu Ryu is just, uh, I can't even talk about this man. He moves me so much as an actor and just as a father figure. There are just certain men that are like father figures for me or I feel like a connection to them because of my own relationship to my father. Robin Williams is one of them. I really loved Robin Williams deeply. And when he died, I was heartbroken. I talk about that in my episode on Dead Poets Society. But Chishu Ryu has become that for me. Like, he is just, he kills me in this film. In that scene, he does not say, yes, I'm going to marry her. He nods it. Because he he can't lie to her, obviously. It would be too hard for him to actually lie and say, oh yeah, I'm going to marry her. She just asks him questions and he nods along and makes her think that he's going to get married. And she is so upset. She runs from the room. She's crying. She's heartbroken, sobbing. She has her hands over her face. This is sort of an image that recurs through some of Ozu films as a woman with her a woman crying with her hands covering her face. You'll see it a bit in Tokyo Twilight as well. It's just something that I've noticed. And again, this is when her calm, smiling exterior is just completely um, disrupted. And this is these are moments in which the emotion that is roiling and churning under the surface within these characters when it finally erupts and it finally um, courses out of their bodies and you can feel her heartbreak. It almost feels like a betrayal that he's gone and done this, but he's lying. Like this is, I mean, I don't even know how to talk about this because in his mind, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He feels like I have to lie. I have to tell her because I have to let her go I have to let her have her own life. But I got to thinking, especially the first time I watched it, was that the right thing to do? Was it manipulative to a certain extent? What exactly is wrong with her wanting to live with him and have a life with him? You know, he took that away from her. You know, that he he is saying, I know what's best for you when he does that. I mean, at the same time, you understand why he's doing it. You know that he's doing it because he wants her to have a new life. He wants her to have a husband and children. He wants her to have what he thinks she should have. What he thinks a young girl of her age should have and should want. But throughout the film, Noriko has made it clear that that is not what she wants. 
that she wants to be with him. But he feels that he would doom her to a terrible life if he does not let her get married. And I think we also have to keep in mind that she's 27. She's starting to get to the age where maybe a woman would not be able to get married. The window is closing, right? In Japanese culture, I would guess that if they wait any longer, there could, you could get to a point of no return and it could affect her status in society, I guess. And it could just affect her life, you know. I know in his heart that he's doing it because he thinks it's the right thing to do. I have no doubt about that. But I just couldn't help feeling a lot of sympathy for Noriko. That why is it not valid for her to want to have a life with her father? Why is that wrong? And even today that would be judged. Not just in 1949 when this film was made. But even today, if you talked to a young girl at my age and she wasn't married, and she wasn't dating, and she wasn't doing all these things that people think that you should do at that age, that there would be a lot of judgment and condemnation from people. I mean, I'm nervous even talking about it in this episode of what people might think of me. Uh, They might think that I'm pathetic or whatever. Romantic love is not something that's been part of my life. And if you're an attractive person and you've had people attracted to you your whole life, that must be a really alien thing. But not all of us are beautiful. Not all of us um, attract people to us. Not all of us have had people who wanted to be romantically or sexually involved with us. And so if that's not part of your life, then it's just not part of your life. And I think a lot of girls, when they're growing up, they so define themselves by sexual attention. And they so define themselves by men and their relationships with men. And I had a very different experience growing up. I did, I did not get that, you know. I had a really strong relationship with my father. And I had a very strong sense of myself outside of men. I never defined myself by my relationship to men. I was never interested in impressing men, in being seen as beautiful by men, as being fuckable. That's not the goal of my life, is to look fuckable for men. It's never going to be. That's not who I am. I don't care if you want to fuck me or not. I don't care. I've gotten to that point in my life. Thank God. My identity is not defined by men, and it's never going to be. But I was lucky that I had a great father. I had a father that showed unconditional love and that adored me and who I had a deep connection with. So I'm just, I, I, the love that has been in my life, the love that has defined me and shaped me has been familial love. It has been parental love. That that I received from my parents because I did not get it from any other source. I have talked often on this podcast that I was a lonely child and I continue to be a lonely person. I am a lonely person. I just am. I have difficulty connecting with people. I don't fit into the world. I'm not like everybody else. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm not saying I'm a special snowflake. I'm speaking the truth that I don't fit in. I don't fit in. There is not a place for me in this world and I do not belong And maybe if you're listening, you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. 
but romantic love has never been the center of my life. It's not what I pursue, and it's not what I'm interested in. I'm much more interested in my friendships with people. I value friendship with people. Not everybody values it as much as I do, but I value that, and that's important to me and my relationship with my mother, and that is what sustains me, and that's what I'm trying to say is that for some people, romantic love is not enough, and it's not what keeps them going. And I think that we need to reevaluate. We need to reconceive, reinvent this idea about love, that there's all kinds of different loves. It's not just one kind. It's not just romantic. It's just not getting married. There can be great love between you and your parents. And it's very interesting that I watched something right before doing this episode. It was an old episode of 60 Minutes. Leslie Stahl was doing the story, I think, and it's from 2001, and it's about a thing in Italy that is a very real phenomenon, and it's called, these men are called mamoni, and they basically live at home with their mom and their parents very late into their lives, into their 30s, their 40s, their 50s even, and they will live at home with their moms, but sometimes they will have a house or an apartment near where their parents live, but only within a few miles. These men do date, but they mainly live with their parents. And what I learned from that special, and I don't know if it's still relevant, because it is almost 20 years later, but this was a phenomenon, and it may still be a phenomenon of the Mamoni, but I thought it was fascinating. Um, It is seen as like shameful if your son was to move out of the home at age 18 and this seems to be sort of a gendered thing and I wasn't totally sure how I felt about you know these Italian men having their mothers do everything for them like that seemed like a big burden on the mothers to have to do laundry and cook and but at the same time the mothers in in the special at least they acted like they loved doing it that they loved taking care of their sons and I don't know if there is an equivalent for women in Italy I don't know if there are women in Italy who live at home with their parents for long periods of time. So there is a gender thing going on here, obviously. But what I thought was interesting about it or illuminating about it was this idea that there are all kinds of different um, cultural um, standards throughout the world that here here in the West, they want their kids to move out at the age of 18. But in other cultures like Italy and other places where family is much more important and where it's, you know, you take care of family, your child moving out of the home and having to fend for themselves at the age of 18 would be considered just barbaric and cruel. And I think it just reminds us that what we think about love or what we think about family really is different depending on culture and that I would argue there is something seriously wrong with the way the United States sees family that it's very in keeping with this individualist survival of the fittest pull yourself up by the bootstraps thinking that when you're 18 you need to just figure it out yourself you know who cares if you're out and you're by yourself and you're alone And, 
you don't feel connected to anybody and you're just working and and you have nobody else, you know, why can't you live at home? Why can't you live with your family? Why is living with your family, living with your parents, why is that seen as pathetic? Why is that? Like, I want to challenge you here. I really want you to think about why is it wrong for someone to want to live with their family where they feel loved and supported? I I want us to really think about that as Americans, why that is seen as sad and pathetic. That you would want to live with your parents or live with the people that you feel a deep and loving and affectionate connection to. Would it be better for you to just be out by yourself alone? How is that better? How is it better to not live with the people that you love? I'm not saying you should freeload. I'm not saying that you should live with your parents and not help them out and not pay bills. And, you know, of course I help take care of my mom. But I'm saying what is wrong with that choice to live that way? Why is that wrong? There is epic, epic levels of depression and disconnection and loneliness in our culture. It is a problem. People feel lonely. They feel disconnected. They do not feel a sense of connection or community. So I would ask that we in the Western world think about how we're creating that disconnection. That maybe if we thought about different forms of love, of not saying that romantic love is the be-all, end-all, that maybe friendship could be powerful. I would really like to know why two women can't live together as friends. Like that would be heaven to me. If I had a best friend and we lived together and we just had a life together as friends, as just hanging out and watching movies and like, why does it always have to be romantic? Why? Like, I don't get it. Am I weird? I'm weird. I know y'all think I'm weird right now, but what is wrong with just friendship love? What is wrong with parental love? What is wrong with those forms of love? If they keep you going and they save you and they make you feel a rich life and a meaningful life, that here is someone you feel deeply connected to and it may not be sexual and it may not be romantic, but why is that not a valid form of love? I'm really asking because there's, there's serious things wrong with our culture and I'm not saying it's all connected to this, obviously, Toxic masculinity is a big issue and patriarchy and racism and sexism and all that stuff is why our culture is shit right now. But I think we really need to think about love and connection and, and, and things like that and, and create new forms of love and create a space for people who have a different experience of love, right? So for me, Noriko wanting to live with her father was totally valid. And I did not understand why that was so wrong. I mean, obviously, it's 1949. I get it. You know, I get in Japan that that was not an acceptable thing. But it still hurt me because there is this heartbreaking scene before her wedding. Um, She and her father go to Kyoto Um, as like a little vacation because it's really the last time they're going to be together as father and daughter before she gets married and she's going to have this new life and everything's going to change and they have a really nice time and and near the end they're talking I think they're in like their hotel room 
and he's talking about how now her husband will take her to places and she is so sad um you know after he lies and says that he's going to marry this other woman and after he really convinces her that what he wants is for her to get married she believes him she does not want to cause him problems she does not want to upset her father and she doesn't want to hurt him in any way and so she does agree to get married to someone but she's doing it again out of that out of wanting to please him and wanting to make things okay for him um and perhaps she feels like she's not needed that he through his lying probably makes her feel like well I guess he doesn't need me he's going to marry this other woman but of course he's not going to marry that other woman um but there's a really this scene is very heartbreaking for me because I think it's when Noriko really shares how she truly feels and she says quote I want us to stay as we are being with you is enough for me I'm happy just as I am I just want to be by your side I'm so fond of you being with you like this is my greatest happiness. Why can't we stay just as we are? Unquote. And this absolutely broke me. Because I think she is sharing how she truly feels. Being with you is my greatest happiness. And that's how I feel with my mom. You know, when we're watching a TV show, we love British shows. We love like British detective shows. And we'll watch a show or we'll go to the park together and in those moments I feel completely whole and completely happy to be with her and to have a life with her and I don't feel like I need any more than that and I feel like that's how Noriko feels with her father that and she says it I'm so fond of you this is I really don't think this is just well I feel obligated to take care of my father because he's getting old I think this is, she adores this man, just like I adored my father. I, and if he was alive right now, that I would be living with him and my mom. He was just an adorable person. He was the kind of person who deserved love. And I loved him deeply. And so I feel that with Noriko. I feel that same love for my father that she feels for her father. And she just says it right there. She just lays it all out. She lays her heart out and says, I'm fond of you. You are my greatest happiness. I love you. Why can't we stay just as we are? That's the thing is that often Ozu's characters, they are ruled and controlled and confined by social norms and social conventions. That at this age, you have to get married and this is what you have to do. It's not necessarily what they want to do, but it's what they have to do. Why can't we stay just as we are? Why can't they? That's what I was asking. Like, why can't they? And 60 some years later, I don't know, my math is terrible. I'm sure it's way more than 60 years since 1949. But I'm thinking in the moment. I'm talking in the moment. Why are we still in this mindset? that you have to get married you can't have this kind of love you can't have this kind of relationship I mean it's just crazy to me that you can't have other forms of love and that they're not completely as valid as getting married or being with a husband or being with a man like it infuriates me really <laughs> why can't we stay as we are what is wrong with us being together and having a life together 
as two people who love each other and are fond of each other and who feel a sense of connection and love why why can't we have that and he goes on and he gives a big speech about starting the new life with her husband and them being together and he says that she has to make an effort to be happy and to create happiness and he wants her to be happy and her being happy will make him be happy and of course all of this feels like they're not really he's not understanding that what would make her happy is to be with him. But at the same time, he's thinking she'll regret it. She'll regret it that 10, 20 years down the line, when she had, when her ability to marry or have children has passed, she will regret staying with me. And maybe he's right. It's interesting in Autumn Afternoon, which I mentioned earlier, gives us that that concept or gives us that scenario because in that film there is a character an older man whose daughter still lives with him and she never got married and he regrets not letting her get married and he comes home drunk and you can tell that she's somewhat miserable living with her father and she's much older you know she's probably in her 40s so in an autumn afternoon we're given a much more cynical view you know that what if Noriko had stayed with her father? Well, this could have been her life, that her father's going out and getting drunk and she has to take care of him. And I don't know. I didn't get the sense that that's what would happen between Noriko and her father in late spring. This is a much deeper relationship, I think, and a relationship based on love and mutual admiration and mutual fondness. And I do think that they could have had a life together that it could have been okay and that it's okay if that's what she wanted but she wasn't even allowed to want it she wasn't even allowed to and she pretends to be okay with the wedding and she apologizes for worrying him so in this scene it's like they're talking to each other but they're not really communicating i mean i think she is sharing her heart she's sharing what she truly feels but he can't. He he so believes that what he is doing is right. And I guess he is right. I don't know. I, I can't make that judgment if he is right. But at the same time, I think a woman has the right to what she feels and what she wants and what she believes is best for herself. And throughout this film, that's what Noriko is doing. She is affirming what she feels and believes whether it's in the scene with her aunt saying to her aunt, I don't want to get married. Or if it's even in this scene where she's bearing her heart and soul to him and saying, you're my greatest happiness. I love you. I, I wish we could have a life together. Why can't we just stay as we are? She's so raw and vulnerable in that moment with him. But he is so convinced of his stance that he cannot, he cannot truly share what he feels. I think inside he feels something very different than what he says to her in that speech. Oh, be happy. I want you to be happy. But I think inside he's feeling, don't go. I'm going to miss you, you know. And so her wedding day does come. And she gets married. And it's just like she's engaged in this charade, you know. Like, ugh. It was heartbreaking to me when they showed her in that wedding dress and in that wedding, you know, uh, costume. She looked so unhappy. She looked really unhappy to me. Um, 
like she did not want to go through with it but she was really doing it for her father and trying to make him happy and it's like they're both acting in that moment like truly acting with each other you know her pretending like that's what she wants and him acting like he's happy and inside they're both just heartbroken people and that's what I'm talking about is why go through this charade why go through all this when you're both just hurting but it's like society forces that on people it forces people to be who they are not because they feel like well this is what I'm supposed to do this is the norm and what I'm saying is that we need to create more alternatives and more choices that if you don't want to get married if you want to pursue different kinds of love and different kinds of relationships that are outside the status quo you know if you want to take care of your parents or you want to live with one of your parents why is that not valid why is that seen as pathetic and you know oh you're such a failure or something um I think we need to really rethink that in a lot of ways but here are these two characters who just feel so you know they feel forced by society into this because he knows, oh, 10, 20 years down the road, society's not going to let her get married. Society is going to see her as an old spinster. Society's going to see her in that way, and her life may go down a really bad path. Um, so he feels like he has to do this. He has to lie, and he has to let her go, when I don't really think that's what either of them wants. You know, I don't think it is. And after the wedding, he goes to a bar and he's talking to Noriko's friend and he tells her that he isn't really marrying anybody. He says he only said it so that she would get married Married, and he calls it, quote, the biggest lie of my life, unquote. And I think he knows what he's done. I think he knows that, I think he knows he's hurt her, you know, in some way. But also what he's done to himself that now he's alone. And the final scene of this film, like, I I think I cried the first time I saw it. And it still moves me. And in one of the, never mind, I'm not going to tell that story. But um, this, this last scene just kills me. It really does. He goes down, he goes home. He's alone now. She's not there to meet him like she was at the beginning of the film. And again, what happens within the four walls of our homes has a tremendous power over us. And it can be very emotional and devastating. And that is where the true emotions sometimes can come out within that private interior space. Um, you know, here was a home that once had a daughter here is a home that they once shared and he returns to it by himself and this is how his life will unfold. He will be alone. She will visit him, I'm sure. But every day he will come home to an empty home. And he peels an apple. He's just, I don't know how Ozu did it. He knew how to imbue everyday objects or everyday actions with profound meaning. That's what he does time and time again in the film. Um, he's just peeling an apple with a knife and his shoulders slump over. And this is Chishu Ryu's genius. And this is why I think he's a masterful actor is what he can say through his body. 
And he says everything in his body in this scene. The way he is sitting in the chair, the way he is peeling the apple, the way his shoulders slump over, and you can tell that he is feeling the full force of her absence, that it just seems to hit him in that instant. And oh, and I think it ends, then it cuts to like ocean waves. And I just, Ozu was like a poet. Like this is like poetry to me. Like the way these images fit together and how he created really his own language with this steel stationary camera that reveals, it reveals life to us. It reveals interiors to us. He just gives us so much in his films. He gives us the human condition. He gives us what happens within the space of people's lives, the ordinary things, the ordinary things that have such power and that matter and that shape us. Um, but him peeling that apple and then his shoulders slump over and you feel it, you feel it and it makes you cry and like I wept, I, I just shamelessly wept, I think, after seeing that. It's just, that is the only moment, I think, when he truly shows his emotions. Because before that, he had really been hiding it. Although I could really see it in the scene where he's just nodding. When she's asking, oh, are you interested in that woman? Are you going to marry her? And he just shakes his head, yeah, because he knows he has to lie. Because he wants to give, he wants her to have a better life than what he thinks he could give her. And, um, God, the resonance of this film for me. That's why it's my favorite. I love Tokyo Story. It's devastating. It's powerful. Rightfully voted number one by directors. But late spring is really what gets to me. It really just cuts my heart out. And, um, because of those parallels or those connections with my own life of here's Noriko left with one parent, just as I am left with one parent. Noriko who loves the parent that remains and wants to have a life with them and feels so much love and fondness and connection to them that really is fulfilling and sustaining for her. But she does, she's not able to have that life. She has to go and get married and go through this charade that this is what she wants when it's not really what she wants. She wants to be with her father. But he feels like he's doing the right thing by lying and by giving her a better life, he thinks, with this man and with marriage. So both of them, you know, both of them are just, um, they think they're doing the right thing for each other. And I think what they really need is each other. And that's the one thing that they can't have. And for me, that's sort of the tragedy of the film. But I feel a very personal connection to it. It, I, people, Other people may get very different interpretations from this film. And I think that's fine. But on this podcast, I always try to connect films to my personal life and my personal feelings. And even though this is a film made many decades ago and in a different country and in a different culture... There is very deep resonance for me, as I have told you throughout this episode. And I hope that it gives you maybe a different perspective on the film or maybe one that you haven't heard before. But I really feel like Noriko's wishes should have been respected and that I think it was totally valid that she did want to stay with her father and care for him and have a life with him. And I'm asking, why can't we still have that now? Why Why is it still looked down upon 
that you may have a deeper connection with a family member or with a parent or with a friend. I'm just asking us to really expand our ideas of love and the kind of love that is right for each person. That I don't think marriage and children is the right thing for everybody. You know, I have a life with my mother and I'm happy with that life. And that's just how I feel that I, we unconditionally love each other. We've been through a lot of trauma together and we understand each other. It doesn't mean every day's perfect and that we don't struggle or have conflict or anything like that. But um, there's a, a depth of love and connection there that I can't conceive of finding anywhere else. And this is just the life that I've chosen for myself. And I don't see it as a failure. And I don't see it as something that should be looked down on. Or something that is less than a person who might be married or in a romantic relationship. I'm saying that all this kind of love is valid. you know. And if you'd rather be alone or whatever, we need to respect people's wishes. As long as they're not hurting other people, obviously. So I'm sort of, I have a lot of sympathy for Noriko in this film and of what she wanted. And it, it's, it's tragedy to me. It's really tragic to me that they didn't get to be together, that, that they're both hurting and that now he's alone. And what's he going to do? What's going to happen to him? But what's going to happen to Noriko? You know, does she really love the man that she married? And I mean, I'm sure Noriko will adapt to it. You know, I'm sure she will. But should she have to? You know, but it's not just about the social conventions, the social pressure in Japan. You could argue that that's everywhere. That every culture confines its people through these norms and through these things that they think they're supposed to do and that they have to fit in. It may not be as bad as it was in the 1950s, say, or the 1940s, that that tremendous pressure of conformity on people whether it was in the United States or different countries but I think it's certainly still there there are still a lot of pressures on people to live in a certain way and um, I think we need to expand that and I just think this film is masterful it's my favorite Ozu because of that father-daughter relationship and because I think as perhaps it challenges the audience to consider what is wrong with this relationship? What is wrong with Noriko wanting to have a life with her father? Ozu had a life with his mother. He lived with his mother his entire life. I'm not saying that's coming through the film. I don't want to make any kind of pronouncements about his life. But I wonder if that's maybe that is part of the film a little bit. It's his own experience of always living with his mother. I don't know a lot about that relationship. I don't know if it's in biographies about him. I would like to learn more about it, actually, of, of him living with his mother. But I don't think it's a coincidence that he makes a film like that. And then he himself has, seems to have a really strong connection to one of his parents. But I don't want to impose, you know, the the director's biography onto the work but I just think it's interesting. So, well, I have talked enough about this film. I hope that you liked what I had to say. And I just wanted to share my personal thoughts and feelings and why this film hits me as hard as it does. And it was nice to talk about it. And um, yeah, Ozu's definitely helping me right now. And I'm really enjoying his work. And I'm hoping to watch some more Japanese cinema because I really do love it. I'll stop here.
Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films.